Welcome to the Passive Mobile Home Park Investing Podcast with your host, Andrew Keel. This is the podcast where you can get the education you need to invest 100% passively in the highly profitable niche of mobile home parks. Welcome to the Passive Mobile Home Park Investing Podcast. This is your host, Andrew Keel. And today we have an amazing guest in Mr. Lee Mickums of Parkbridge Capital Group. Before we dive in, I want to ask a real quick favor. Would you mind taking an extra 30 seconds to head over to iTunes and rate this podcast with five stars? This gets us more listeners, and it means the absolute world to me. So thank you for making my day with that review of the show. All right, let's dive in. Lee has more than 30 years of experience in real estate. He initially entered the real estate investing arena in the apartment and self-storage sectors with a private equity firm based in the Northwest. He later formed Parkbridge as an affiliate company in the mobile home park and RV resort investment business. Lee's company was instrumental in the affiliate growing to over 60 communities across 13 states and 28,000 home sites. Lee participated in the first CMBS financing in the U.S. in the early 1990s, uh, resulting in $106 million in financing for his affiliate company. Lee currently resides in Los Angeles, California. Lee, welcome to the show. Thank you, Andrew. Excited to have you here and would love to hear your story and how in the world you ended up in mobile home parks. Okay, good question. I, as I said, in, in, as you mentioned in the intro, I was in the uh, apartment syndication business many years ago when I was a, a younger guy, of course. And during the business cycle, as things were tightening up, we had a spike in interest rates, and business slowdown. This affected the real estate industry, the multifamily industry quite dramatically. And I was living in the, the Portland area. We had a bunch of pro- apartments up and down I-5, Eugene, Salem, Portland, Vancouver, and so forth. And noticed there was quite a bit of vacancy coming up in some of the apartments, particularly one bedrooms. People were consolidating, moving into two bedrooms, moving home with their parents and so forth. But while this was going on, I noticed that the, uh, the mobile home park industry in the Portland area, and Portland, the West Coast, Oregon, has some really spectacular mobile home parks, some of the really nicest in the country. I noted that the 55 and older parks had like no change. I mean, they were full. People were paying their rents. Nobody's complaining. People have fixed incomes, retirement income, owned their homes, whatever. And so with that noted and noticing the turmoil in the multifamily area, we also had some self-storage as well. And even that got a little bit shaken up. This isn't so much the case today. But nonetheless, what I saw in the uh, mobile home park side with this stability and uh, what appear to be predictable increases because the lack of supply of, of spaces. Uh, I got into that business, picked up a, my first park was a 72 space, 55 and older property in, in uh, Northeast Portland area. And uh, very nice, picked up another one after that. And uh, they ran beautifully for, uh, without a hitch as if they were immune to the economy. You know, where you say the, uh, where you hear the saying that Mobile home parks are recession-proof, but that was very evident to me. I was living it. While some of the apartments were going through a lot of turmoil, these were cruising along. And uh, so that's how I got into the business originally. Wow. And what time frame was that when you first got into the business? 
when I was like a, a kid, I was like five years old. This was uh, back in around 1982 or three. <laughs> so huh, that's when the uh, interest rates spiked up into the 20% area, you know, wow. and uh, that was for people that uh, lived through that time, which, you know, there are many still, but that was, uh, you know, the, the Reagan era came on and so forth. And we saw some turn around the business scene, but you know, that's when I think Paul Volkel jabbed up the interest rates and, and stopped that recession, uh, the inflation that we had in its tracks. In the meantime, you know, people suffered through that sort of inflationary spike and then had it cut short. Don't know what they're gonna to do today. It's a little bit more out of hand, but uh, in any event, that's the time frame that occurred in. Wow, that's wonderful. To that. And I would, I would love to spend a little time talking about that because it, uh, you know, they say history repeats itself. Don't know if the Fed really has the the gumption to do what Paul did back then and, and raise rates as as high as he did. You know, what do you think about the economy right now and, uh, you know, where interest rates are going to go? I mean, I've I've heard a quarter of a point, but. I think it needs more than that. I don't know. What do you, what do you think? Yeah, it's really hard to predict. I mean, this is not so much a credit cycle where you have this inflation. It's just from, from trillions of dollars being thrown out of the market, people having all the extra money. The, the problem is now, how do you squeeze that out of the economy? So it's um, analogous, I think, more to the, the Japanese inflation that happened many, many years ago and then ran a more dramatic program to, to run it out. I don't know what they're going to do here because the leadership... Is way different than it was back then. The appetite for the executive branch to take responsibility for what's going on and take the necessary actions to correct it or improve life for Americans seems to be beyond the reach of what they're willing to do. And so the future is somewhat unpredictable, even with respect to the business cycle, let alone whatever else is going on in the world, which is you know, certainly really tumultuous and uh, hard to predict what's going on in the future. I would think that the interest rates do need to go up significantly in order to ramp down the inflation that we're having, but I don't know that's gonna solve gas prices at all, you know, or food. I mean, those things are just, in my opinion, been dramatically mismanaged with, mismanaged with the resources we have available in this country. And so we're just, kind of off to the rodeo, seeing what happens. Yeah, it was funny. This uh, this past weekend, I subscribed to a, uh, a newsletter by John Malden. He's an economist. And he his, his headline of his email, he, uh, he called recession. He said the Fed, uh, you know, is walking a tightrope and he just doesn't see a way for them to get out of this without a recession. Uh, do you agree with him? I do. And you might even be looking at stagflation as well, you know, where you have a business slowdown and uh, increasing prices at the same time, no increase in productivity. So, you know, you people in small businesses today are having a heck of a time hiring. I mean, if you're in the business, you know how difficult it is to hire skilled people that actually even want to work. Yeah. So we have a, it's, it's sort of a, a unique time in, in uh, memory of those of us that have been through this sort of thing before. Yeah, time will tell how it comes out the other side. Maybe you could shed some light on, you know, mobile home parks. You you mentioned how your 55 and older communities, they did well during the during the 80s, right? And yeah, they, sure they performed well. How about, you know, other recessions? I know there was uh, 
the chattel loan crisis in the 90s. Yep. Uh, right. Maybe you could shed some light on that. And then, you know, even as recent as uh, the Great Recession, right, in, in 2008 and 2009. Maybe the greatest, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which is the greatest recession. So yeah, I mean, we had the the uh, it hit the fan again in the '90s. I think when we had a change in the tax laws, Bob Packwood, who was a senator from U.S. senator from uh, Oregon, changed the tax laws were voted so that you passes law passive losses couldn't flow through to investors anymore, and which created a huge problem for lenders. And uh, so we went into a, a, a recessionary environment then. And uh, frankly, that was the banking collapse that we had and at that time. And the RT's Resolution Trust Corporation came along and consolidated a bunch of the banks and so forth. It was also very painful. We had a number of loans going through. We were, I was affiliated with another uh, significant investment firm, Ellenberg Capital. Some of the people have been on this podcast may remember them, but we assembled probably the largest, highest quality institutional portfolio of parks in the country during the, uh, let's say, late 80s to late 90s. But so, yes, that that uh, that collapse the RTC entered in on was really painful. Not so much in the operation side, but the, um, the fact that, you know, banks couldn't really get loans. Interestingly enough, during this time, the, uh, as the banks were going down, certain investment firms, Merrill Lynch and other companies that were doing white papers, were checking to see what was going on with respect to the debt of, of various types of assets. And what was discovered is that among these portfolios, let's say for home savings, Gibraltar, some of the Calfens, some of these other bigger companies, their mobile home portfolio portfolios were performing really well, which was a real eye opener to the investment community as some of the other asset types had suffered pretty badly. I remember Lincoln National Life Insurance came over to our office and we were interviewed for a, a white paper they were doing to assess whether they wanted to get into that business as well. As a result of those investigations back in the 90s, it was more or less proved out that the risk factors that were associated with lenders going into the mobile home park space were very low. And the foreclosures, the defaults were very low. So even though there was tumult in the markets, these assets were still performing very well, which led thereafter to a way out of getting out of this uh, lending bind. And the, uh, uh, although there had been many REMIX with state mortgage investments who could pass through residential for years, we got into one where the first commercial REMIX were done with CMBS loans. And my firm arranged it so that we were going to do a, a project where Daiwa Securities was in the lead through to do a, a CMBS loan. It was the first CMBS loan ever done in the United States in 1991. And the portfolios that were put together then were not multifamily. It was mostly, the greater part of it was mobile home park, our portfolio. Wow. So that was an interesting piece of history. And, you know, the CMBS financing has become a lot simpler since then. That was a real wild and crazy time. But we came out the other end with our financing. And then from there on out, the CMBS market expanded to by leaps and bounds to a whole really viable way of doing business and gave an outlet to uh, to mobile home park investors you know we really didn't have Fannie Freddie going strong at that time and so uh, when the savings alone shut down it was very hard to find answers seller carried paper would be the option and, and then CMBS you know conduits came out and voila we have liquidity and a lot more of that sort of business going on today. 
Wow. History. Yeah, I can only imagine. Yeah, that's yeah. fantastic. The story yeah. of, uh, I'm sure it was more common practice, right? With mom and pops being willing to hold paper, you know, and just because of the, the marketplace. Um, that's true. So. That is true. You know, and then shortly thereafter, you had some of the REITs coming out and they uh, were tremendously liquid to pay, pay cash. And that also, so following the tumult of the debt markets at that time with the RTC, shortly thereafter, you had the REITs coming forward. And, uh, and then even more so into the uh, mid-90s. And they, they were a dramatic, dramatic influence in the markets, you know, ELS and Sun particularly. Sure. I wrote a note here when you were talking. I said, you know, which institutional quality assets do you do you wish you still own today? You know, given huh. given cap rates are at the uh, you know the lowest they've been on mobile home parks. I think I heard someone say in fifty or sixty years. You know, which ones yeah. do you think you, you wish you kept? Yeah, I know. I mean, I haven't personally. I haven't been able to make the paradigm shift in my mind going from buying high-end five-star assets at, you know, eight and three-quarter, 8.8 caps to where now it's less than half of that. But, you know, for instance, we had a beautiful uh, couple of parks in Sarasota right in the mid-90s that were divided by I-75 and total of like about 980 sites between the, the two. And we paid, I think, about 20, 28000 a site for those. Now, this, again, was like in the, you know, mid-90s. Those properties were bought, I think, a year or two ago by another company, David Knapp, put together using, uh, I forget the name of the, it's, but, you know, he has a big investment fund, and mm-hmm. the name escapes me. That park was bought two years ago, and he paid, I think, 170000 in space for it. So would we like to kept that? Probably, <laughs> you know, but yeah, hindsight is always twenty twenty, and, sure. you know, as an investment group, you like to make your investors happy and turn a profit once in a while. There are those guys that are very long-term holders. And I know someone that's, you know, a great business and you get to run the, uh, you know, inflationary spiral that way. I mean, I bought a property for my family back then in 88, uh, a a mobile home park in Portland, Oregon. I think we paid 22,000 a space. I was sort of sweating bullets for paying that kind of a price for it at the time. And and now that property is, uh, it's not no part of my family. It's my my former family, let's say. But that... uh, Property is worth probably 125,000 a space. So, you know, wow. the Portland Metro higher quality parks, family or otherwise, or senior, are really priced up there, as you would see in, in many other areas. Yeah, so, that's what happens. It's the asset you would rather not sell, you know? <laughs> that's the uh, yeah. you know, choices you make. But hindsight yeah. is remarkable. Yeah, uh, what does is, what is Sam Zell says? He says, you never get in trouble taking a profit or you never. Uh, yeah, I mean, it makes sense. Well, let's let's dive in here. I have a couple other questions I wanted to ask you. Uh, what was the biggest hurdle for you, you know, in your uh, investment experience with mobile home parks? I mean, it seems like you were dealing with, you know, 55 and older, you know, institutional quality assets. Uh, I'm sure management's a lot easier on those type of assets, but maybe, you know, you could shed some light on the toughest hurdle for you guys in, in the business. Um, well, you know, the uh, for me, since I was on the acquisition side, more or less asset management, I didn't get too terribly involved with the operational side of it. But, you know, I knew we had operational issues in some parks. 
But those are, you know, I, I think the operational issues, if you run across a portfolio are endemic to anything you own, if you own enough of it, you're going to run into some really crappy things. Uh, for the most part, we were buying higher, higher quality properties, but that didn't mean to say that inadvertently, uh, one of the properties along a river wasn't going to get flooded out and be wiped out, you know, or another one, we didn't own anything really in the uh, uh, tornado belt, but, you know, we did you know, the parks that were near us that were destroyed that way. Those are sort of extraneously, you know, for if you own that portfolio, it's on your own private black swan event, let's say. But uh, it's just, it just, the operating parks is just something that's really, really hands-on. You got to stay on it. You have really good people. We had really good people at our company uh, to, to run those assets. And since that time, I mean, I opened up my own management company with my partner, uh, Dora Steed, who used to be division president at Hometown. So um, she's very experienced. So I rely upon other people that really know what they're doing that way. My, my side of it was mostly, you know, for trying to figure out what to buy next and having it make sense and overseeing the due diligence properly. It's never been too much of an issue getting good financing, sort of an issue, but, you know, it's whether or not they're going to retrade you at some point, what that's going to do to your investors and uh, and, you know, just your sleepless night for a couple of nights or whatever. But for me, it was just, you know, finding the correct asset, valuing it out, and being able to buy it. Of course, it's very competitive today. I think it's really, uh, it's never been, there's never been like a cornucopia of parks you go, I like that one or that one, and let's go buy those. It's always been, you know, dig in, find them, evaluate them properly. And I'm really orthodox in the way I underwrite parks and really, you know, have been. Uh, where you don't want to say tweak it. Oh yeah, we'll be able to save that amount on our maintenance because the broker said so, and they're paying way more. <laughs> they're paying way more to the uh, management you need to pay. You know, uh, and by the way, what happened to your reserves and replacements in there, uh, Mr. Broker? And, and you know, you just don't see that. But if you run a property, you know, no. my 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 for, for my focus is really underwriting the, the expenses much more than the income. The income you can play with a little bit more dramatically, you know, and you can change things through marketing or what have you. Some cases not as easy as others, but you know, you really get hit on the expense side. Let's talk about the expenses, right? Let's, they say the industry standard is around a 35 to 40% expense ratio. And a lot of operators use that. Would you say that's true from your experience? It's on a really case by case basis. You know, in some states you have a much higher cost of your gross income goes to real estate taxes, for example, mm -hmm. depending on whether you pick up the water and sewer inside of your rent uh, or not can influence that dramatically, you know, by 5, 10, 12 percent. Um, the age of the property can also influence the amount you have to spend on, uh, 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 on, on fixing it up, repairs and maintenance and so forth. Uh, if you're not catching your CapEx well, you forget, you're, you don't know that your underground is going to have significant problems. You could, you know, have issues there. But so it's really interesting. But I think that is a, probably a relatively good range, you know. But see, when we underwrite, we also have put out a professional management fee. I'll use a CapEx reserve, capital replacements, and that sort of thing. And also when we, we have a real business that we have to abide by the laws. So we pay our uh on-site managers, and we also have to pay, uh, you know, their employees. We have to withhold on them. They have to pay workers' comp, all that stuff. Can't just really 
at the size we of properties we deal with, we can't just go, well, we'll pay into the table, this and that. We just don't do that. You can get, you can do it, just we don't do it. And it, it works, but so each to his own, don't judge me all about it. Sometimes I wish we could actually, but we don't. So overall, but saying if you're in the 35 to 40% range, 40, 35 to 45, you know, I, you see stuff come out, only 18% expenses, only 20. Well, you know, it's falling apart. Of course, there's no expenses. Nobody's managing it. You don't do any repairs or maintenance. You know, really easy to run, low expense park. Well, why don't we why don't we find out why that is? Yeah. You know, so you, you find that going forward that you know, yeah, I look at it very seriously because my money and my investors' money. I mean, I sort of don't want to use lose my money, but I feel we, we don't want to investors' money, that's way important than mine. You know, I mean. I, feel I the same sleep way. at night yeah. if I lose mine. I mean, my wife might not be happy about it. But <laughs> do not want to deal with investor losses. Unfortunately, I haven't had to. But nonetheless, those are all components of how you correctly underwrite and, and figure out uh, expenses. So I think one of the great things that's overlooked is the capex. You know, capital. Let's expenses. talk about that. Let's talk about that for a second. What's an appropriate baseline kind of middle of the road park? capex reserve that you would say on a per lot basis you should be setting aside that's a good question i don't know there's any particularly spectacular correct answer to that a lot has to do with the age of the property and what type of uh, infrastructure you have let's say if you have a on-site sewage facilities uh, whether it's a plant or whether you have septic uh, you could run into some major issues with that, as opposed to if you've got, you know, public water and sewer, you might have a, you know, a pipe break here and there, or maybe a root goes through a sewer pipe or the water line breaks, what have you. So you have certain stuff going on there. And then on the age, on the roads, and do an assessment of that. But frankly, I run probably a one and a half to two and a half percent of gross, which really f- fills in there, you know, and that could be, I don't know, on the low end, maybe 75 up to 125, 150 a site, depending on the on the property. But you know, it's just yeah. it just it varies so much. But you can't, I don't think you necessarily fool yourself into thinking that's not going to happen. You could try and fool yourself that way as an underwriter, as a buyer. And it's certainly different when you're a lender taking a look at the conditions and go, oh, we're gonna have you set aside uh, your capex reserve at 25 or 30 or 50 bucks a year. And like, okay, great. That's great for the underwriting of the debt. And many lenders don't even require it. But realistically, look, at I've been involved in, in, in you know, overseeing and being involved with like 30, 35,000 spaces. So over that period of time, you get a good flavor of what things are going to be happening to you. And not everyone is, you know, goes into the, the tank that way. But if you have to replace a septic field or you have to Florida sinkholes or eventually you can have to overlay your roads, you know, uh, all sorts of things can happen underground. You know, you just run into that stuff. So yeah, it, it, I, I, I personally can't ignore it. Uh, would like to because it makes it, you can then come up with a different net operating income to which you, you can capitalize and buy whatever your preferred cap rate is today. You know, and to compete in this market, it's pretty tough. I know you have the cap rate dartboard, I think starts at three and goes up to six. And that's all you can play anymore in many of these better quality parks or different markets. And that paradigm shift has been made by some people yeah. pretty easily. I saw a great park came on the market by a great broker the other day, John Grant. And it was up in Santa Maria North of here between San Luis Obispo and Santa Barbara. That's three cap. 
So, you know, that's happening, you know, whether it sells at that or not, don't know, but highly desirable assets in California coast that are spectacular will sell for very low cap rates. You see this continually, you know? So when does that go back? The other, I keep asking, when does that, when do the cap rates start moving up again? And exactly. they usually do follow interest rates to some degree, but interest rates have only gone down X amount. Let's say it goes down to debt goes down from uh, you know four and a half rate down to three and a half rate, but cap rates have gone down from about five and a half to uh, a three and a half or a six to a three. I mean that's that's a big spread, so you lose a lot of your cash flow, and and so you. I guess it depends on what your investors are satisfied taking these days. And um, those guys that have investors that are and that take 5%, I know some very good companies are paying five or maybe four, I don't know. And then uh, mine's a little bit more than that, but uh, it's a problem. But now we run into this, this craziness today. I can't call it craziness, just the way things, it is the paradigm shift where we have very low cap rates and debt rates going up. And you have your cost to do a deal. By the time you run in your uh, uh, run your cash flow diagram, I mean your your net cash flow per year can be, you know, not where you'd like to see it. And now in the days of me, inflation, <laughs> sorry to keep running off here, but the no, inflation. Me, I want to talk about that because I think that's one of the big things when I talk to our investors that they're concerned about is yeah. you know you're going in right, you're buying this asset at this cap rate and you're planning a, a five or a, a 10 year hold and then, you know, an exit cap rate, you know, sure. and now today we don't really know, right. What that exit cap rate is going to be, right. Cause it's heavily dependent on what interest rates are. So Lately. what is, what is a, you know, what, what have you seen in the past and have you bought assets, whether mobile home parks or apartments or storage in a rising, you know, in rising interest rate environment and, you know, how did that play out? You know, that's a good question. I really haven't quantified it, but the um, we have bought uh, parks over the years in rising interest rate environments, which would be rising cap rate environments. And I think that's just going to be the, that's something that never seems to change. You, you have some fluctuation in rates, although interest rates are so contrived these days in a way, I mean, look at what's happening to our debt. You know, realistically, if you had to run up and stop things by raising the, the real cost of money to beat inflation, let's say, or raise the cost of money, the, the, the government debt is so dramatic that a one or 2% increase in the, uh, what's paid for debt for, you know, US government securities, there's nothing left but to pay the debt, you know? so. It's it's fairly manipulated, it appears, you know. But we seem to be everybody's in on the game. Um, but the uh, as far as forecasting in and out, you know, it's you could assume that well, if I'm buying at this rate, certainly I should sell at that rate. Maybe it, it, maybe I'll sell at a half a point higher because rates will move up. But that that's sort of dependent upon each individual sponsor. Let's say each you know each each managing partner. Sure. Or the committee or the asset management group that's going to determine how that works out. It's really, it's just, just a yes, really. Sure. We talked a little bit about expenses. Maybe we could talk a little bit about you know the revenue piece. You know, what is a consistent in the the, the primary markets? Let's say, you know, rent growth wise, 
you know, what have you guys seen over the, you know, 30 years you, you, you've been doing this uh, for rent growth? What's a realistic percentage? You know, everybody says, oh, you could raise rents 5% per year or, you know, as interest, as, as inflation gets higher, oh, you can always just raise your rates with inflation. Is that realistic or what, you know, where are we off there? Yeah, I think the, uh, you're going to have to choose your poison, I think, because you, you, you can only run it up so much. In some markets that are really tight, you can really jam the rents, let's say, really push them up high, but you can, in, in many instances, create a backlash and have some regulatory authority uh, weigh in on you. For instance, Oregon never had rent control. Um, it was not allowed to be put in a local level. And a couple of years ago, the state decided to go with their, you know, very, um, somebody comes in and says, you know, we're, <clears throat> all our tenants are eating, you know, Alpo lately, and you can't, you know, can't really even buy a good hot dog anymore. You know, that sort of thing. So, and we'll cry before the legislature and, and bingo, you've got rent control. It's not really an accurate assessment of what's really going on because most people are, are living an affordable lifestyle without the rent control. And then when you get rent control, it makes it even worse. But to answer your question, I think you can trend with inflation at least and have to maybe add a little bit more than that. And if you manage well or the, part, or the business is um, in, a, in a market that has really high demand, certainly go above that. And in many cases, you take once in a while a more dramatic rate increase. Well, look, this part, we could forecast um, three, four, or 5%. Of course, rent inflation now realistic, close to nine or 10 when you weigh everything in. Can you project that? Perhaps, I mean, it's easy to take a park that's in a $600, uh, $600 rent market, but the rents are 500. It can certainly take a much larger increase than a you know, three to 5% increase initially, bump it up and sure. then run it from there. But, you know, it's so, so interesting because so much of this business, um, because of the, the way it's stratified, and there's no really concentration of, uh, a great number of parks in a given area, that the rents can be all over the place. And you just have to judge that. You've been really careful not to, you know, make it really painful for our customers. At the same time, we do uh, we serve two publics, the investor and the tenant. So trying to be fair to everybody and want to make the tenant's experience where they live a great one. I want people to run in, go into parks that we're involved and go, this is a nice park, rather than go, God, look at that crappy place. Who would live there? Because we invest back in the property in the long run, that pays back very good dividends as opposed to neglecting it, taking all in cash flow today. You know, you can do it, but uh, you're better to invest back into it, totally. the value in the long run. Yeah, and I think that's a lot of the, the people we're buying these parks from, at least with, with my firm, you know, they, they somewhat have let these things go. and. Yeah. They don't realize that if they would have reinvested into these things, it would have paid them threefold at the closing table uh, instead of, you know, kind of taking all the cash and, and not reinvesting. So exactly. So that is exactly the case. And then it's that some people are, are squeezed. They want the cash flow or they don't care. They don't care so much about the tenants. Oh, they're just rent or whatever. You know, but uh, I think you really have to take care of your tenants. You have you to have provide to. them a, a nice environment which to live. And yeah. the other side of it, so they they would then have more pride in what they own. And then 
you know, people look at the assets. I'm happy to have people take a look at it. Go, oh, I'm glad I own that. I bought parks where people would go, wow, that's recently, let's say, a disaster. I go, yeah, but I know what we can do with that. I bought a park here about in 2018 or 19, 18, I think it was. Not a big park, but it was falling apart, horrible tenancy. I was able to remove a lot of the tenants because at the time we still were able to do that. It was in Oregon. And so we replaced probably 80% of the tenants, moved in new homes. This was a, an RV park, not a mobile park. And, you know, three and a half years later, sold it a four multiple and a 42 IRR. You can't do that every time, but I mean, I don't even like to say it because, oh, I want to do some distance with you. You're getting 42 IR. <laughs> no, that was probably an anomaly. But the, uh, the fact is that, you know, if you can go in and see, it sounds like this is what you do. If you see an opportunity of something that's really mismanaged, a lot of deferred maintenance, people don't know what they're doing. They're not spending money in the right places. They don't know to, you know, throw some good money at the landscaping, which is probably the easiest way to increase the uh, curb appeal on the look of your park, you know, that on a nice sign, and then start forcing people to clean up or, or head out. And you got to get a really big, a nice story in the making for the tenants and you and your investors. Definitely. Lee, let me ask you this. What are your thoughts? It seems like you're more of a primary market guy. What are your thoughts on secondary and tertiary markets and mobile home park investing in those? Let's get question. I mean, years ago, we were very primary market oriented. We were building a large mobile home park portfolio. And we had great presence. Let's say we had 20 parks in Florida, rather large ones with 10,000 spaces. You know, some had golf courses and elegant uh, clubhouses and so forth. Same in Arizona, some of the biggest and best RV parks in the country and around the Phoenix metro area that uh, now we're sold off to uh, own by uh, one of our in investor partners at the time, Calam Properties. It's really, really nice stuff. But so those were very institutional. Nowadays, I'm actually not so much primary market driven because I'm trying to get better returns. So we'll look at secondary and tertiary markets in order to get those returns. I, I just haven't been able to make that paradigm shift yet to buy the four caps. Um, I haven't had anybody come to me and go, I'd like to buy a four cap park. I mean, and, and let's invest and do that. I mean, I guess we could. I mean, there's plenty of guys out there that have, whether they're individual high net worth uh, players or, you know, hedge funds and um, sovereign funds and so forth, and go ahead and do that, even read. So uh, I'm not there, you know. Sure. Where do I want to be, actually? I'm not, I'm but, with you. Yeah, I, I'm not yeah. there either. But yeah, I like I like secondary markets. I like tertiary markets that I think we're seeing in this day and age because of people's frustration with what's going on in some of the big cities that they like to get out of town and they like to live in a smaller market with their family and their kids. I think that's a great choice. You just have to, you know, whether you choose one that's solely oriented in one industry or if you get one that has a few different industries, that'd be great. I mean, you might find a tertiary market that's all, you know, military, let's say. It can work great. Unless they close the base down, you know, it's like yeah. the popsicle tick factory in Maine, you know, when it closed down, well, nobody's left to work or live there anymore. But um, no, I'm all, all, I'm all in on that. You just have to judge which market you want to go in on. Definitely. Let me ask you this. What are the most important things, passive investors, we're talking limited partners here. What do they need to look out for when investing into the mobile home park asset class? Well, that's a very good question. You know, the investors that I have, and many of them are, uh, 
people I've known for years, friends of mine, high network people. And I, I, I literally want them to know as much as they can about that asset and, you know, learn, know about it and so forth. You can leave it up to me and people will invest with you and I because they have confidence in what we do. But I love people to know all they can about it. So I would say, you know, know, know the guy you're, you're investing with, you know, if somebody's going to invest with you, you're become quite prominent, well-known, you have a bit of a track record going, you're a young guy, you could be a, have a, whatever your dreams are you're likely to achieve over your lifetime, doing it methodically. For me, still, you know, we're doing some investing now and then, but I want to make sure I want to know, I, my investors are frankly a bit picky. <laughs> so, you know, and I, I, I can afford to be. So I don't want to like go, oh, I really got to get it in a park. And if it doesn't work out right, you're going to harangue you. You know, you have an, enough uninterrupted non-eight hour nights of sleep as it is without an investor joining in on that too. You know what I mean? So uh, I want to make sure my folks are well-informed. They're I've been invested in real estate before. It's not to say I'm taking people into this kind of new to the game, but I'd like to help them out. Ordinarily, I want people to know a lot, a lot about it. And if they can study and read, listen to podcasts, you know, what you do. There's a couple other industry guys. Well, Frank and Dave have their thing. I tell people, go, go to Frank and Dave, you know, go to their MH University, whatever it is. I sent my, my wife and I have been, we'll be married, I think, six years this coming. Um, geez, this weekend. Holy cow. I'll be right back. <laughs> but anyway. <laughs> So she wanted to get involved in the, in the business. And, and so I had to go to Mobile Home University. It happened to be in Austin. I didn't want to go. I wanted to go to a brisket safari. So it worked for both of us at that time. And she'd say, well, do you know about that? Oh, yeah, I do know about that. How about, yeah, I know about that. What about, yeah, I know about that. But I, I'm glad that people are learning that sort of thing. A lot of people in this business have gone there and getting really well educated. I think it's money really well spent, you know, to read books about it, follow blogs. There's all sorts of interesting things you can get involved with to raise your level of understanding. Because, you know, the more knowledge you have about something, the more responsibility you can take for what you're doing and have a certain degree of control in that too. So, you know, sort of knowledge, responsibility, and control kind of go together. And I think that's, you know, sort of important. That's sort of really, really important. Really, yeah, really important. Uh, Lee, let me ask you this. When studying a new market to go into and to invest in, what's one metric, if you had to narrow it down to one, that is most important for you? Uh, For for that, I would say demand for affordable housing in the area, I think is really kind of key. And how would someone find that out? Would they, how would someone find that out? I, well, I, I think you, you just see whether the apartment supply, how that's going, where the housing supply is really jumping in terms of its pricing and so forth. You can look into vacancy rates in other parks in that area. Um, it, it, and it's really hard to narrow it down to one metric because that can really mess you up a little bit. But I'd like to see a bit of a diversified base and know that that area is growing somewhat. But you know, you can be in an area that's not necessarily growing, but as a real stable, ongoing uh, uh, flow of people that want affordable housing, whether it happens to be military, whether it happens to be a, a, a 
chemical plant or whatever, oil and gas is something I've stayed away from. I've always been a little bit reluctant to get into an an area that has major swings regarding the business cycle, depending on whatever industry. But so diversified economy is great too. So to answer your question, one metric, hard to say, but I think the demand for affordable housing, you know, seeing what apartment prices are doing, how occupied all those are, and, and then, you know, whether people's ability to be able to, you know, buy homes in the market or whatever. So there are a lot of things that go into it. It's not, this market, this business has become more complicated than it used to be, I believe, because years ago, <clears throat> if you're buying a mobile home park or a manufactured home community, you can go into a community and would find that there are a couple of dealers in town, a park became, uh, had a handful of vacancies, you'd find out, you know, find them placing homes in the park and they would sell. Nowadays, a lot of those street dealers are gone. And uh, if you're going to buy, if you're going to get in and fill a park, you have to do some arrangement to bring the homes in yourself, which adds a whole different layer of risk. You have to have a, a skill set for marketing or really, really understand the demand or see that maybe somebody else next door is doing it. Go, well, I can see I can do that too, because they're buying these houses and selling them for, I don't know, 50 to 75 to 80,000 a piece. You know, when the house, other houses in that particular park might be selling for 20. So that's sort of an unnerving thing. Would you gamble that? So you have, to, you know, these are all various assessments you have to make. And that has actually made this business, I think, a little bit more hard to wade through than it was many years ago. Agreed. Agreed. Um, what does the perfect mobile home park look like in your eyes and why? Ooh, I think it would be in Bali for starters. I think <laughs> you know near the beach. <laughs> yeah. But why? So the perfect mobile home park. Uh, if if money were no object, you know, I mean, we can all have our dream park, but I would be in an area that wasn't rent controlled and wasn't going to be looking toward getting rent control. That had been twenty years or newer. That had been on. That's on public utilities, underground infrastructure in good, good uh, shape, you know, roads are in good shape, that sort of thing, with uh, pretty high demand, and, and it would be in, you know, a, a good market to be in a, uh, you know, primary market, and pri- of course, primary is a whole different level of perception when are dealing in mobile home parks, as opposed to like class A institutional investments for, you know, sovereign funds, which would go to, you know, LA, Washington, D.C., New York, Boston, and San Francisco, maybe Chicago, all different when we're dealing with mobile home parks. Phoenix would be great. Let's say Portland, go to different parts, you know, Denver, you know, those are, or Orlando, you know, Naples, Fort Lauderdale, all great markets. Wouldn't mind owning them. Uh, you, you do run the risk in some of those markets in Florida. I mean, I lived in Florida for 14 years and it was more than one time that a, a, a hurricane had my home as a bullseye, you know, so that's unnerving. But um, those are risks you have to take. So I think, you know, just as I said, it's going to be quality asset, diverse economy, 20 years or newer. I mean, if you had your druthers, 10 years or newer, all double wide homes or all single wides with that people had really, really kept it up. You see the pride of ownership in it with good on-site management. On-site management is a whole nother thing. That is your life as an owner operator, whether you sleep well or not or not. It's whether you have good on-site management or whether it's a rodeo as well there. 
you know? You're so right. You're so right. Last, last question, park-owned homes, tenant-owned homes. Help me out. I'm not a big park-owned home guy. I mean, I've been involved with uh, parks that had a few where we went, we managed, uh, third-party managed all the home parks. And dealing with park-owned homes, I've seen it where, you know, you can have a little spread on the right to make an X amount of dollars at the end of a year or two, whenever they move out, you can spend all that money fixing it back up for the next person to trash. That's not necessarily true with the newer homes. And some of that can work out really, really well for people where you're doing like the single family build a rent stuff is a big deal in the market today. Can work very, very well if you're buying mobile homes or manufactured homes. Uh, George Allen would have me to say mobile home, but manufactured homes, putting them in and renting them out. Good maintenance program, good management can be really, really wonderful. Older homes have all sorts of, get into all sorts of problems. These homes do get abused. It can be hard to fix them up. For me, I, I, I limit, if I'm looking at a park, we limit at 10% to park on homes or less, preferably zero, you know? Yeah. But for other people, it's like, well, great, let's bring them on. I can get all that extra cash flow. With it. That's the choice to make, you know? I think people underestimate the cost to renovate a mobile home. You know, yeah. I, I think they forget or don't realize that like the drywalls are different size, the doors are different size, the windows are different size and typically have to be special ordered and shipped in, which right now with the logistical issues raises the price significantly. So sounds like you've had some experience with that. Oh, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. It's a real, uh, you got to really massage that. It's a real skill. And guys can do that really well. It's just that, uh, you know, I, I'm chosen not to. Yeah. Yeah, it, it can be difficult. Lee, how can our listeners get a hold of you if they would like to do so? Stop on by. I'll be around. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can be reached uh, at uh, my email address, lee at parkbridgecapital.com. L-E-E at park, like where you walk. Bridge, like over the water, bridge over the water. Capital with an A-L at the end. Lee at parkbridgecapital.com. Probably the easiest way to do it. Lee, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I've really enjoyed it. It's been great. It's, uh, thanks for having invited me. That's it for today, folks. Thank you all so much for tuning in. Hey, are you getting value out of this show? If so, would you mind please going over to iTunes and leaving the show a quick five-star review? I have a goal of hitting over 100 five-star reviews by the end of 2021. And it would mean the absolute world to me if you could help contribute to that. Thanks ahead of time for making my day with your five-star review of the show.